Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Good evening, everybody. Rabbi Mel back with you. I hope you're good. I'm good. You're good. We're all good. I have a wonderful guest tonight, Dr. Marilyn Mendoza. That is PhD to you guys. And I want to read you her um, her bio, which comes off of her blog, her website. If you want to uh, get to her, you type in MarilynMendoza.com. That's easy enough. And she's got some great stuff that she's written. But let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Mendoza's in private practice in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her practice focuses on grief, bereavement, trauma, and women's issues. She received her PhD in counseling psychology from Loyola University of Chicago, Illinois. She's been licensed as a psychologist in Louisiana since 1986. Dr. Mendoza has served as adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology at Tulane University Medical School. She is currently a clinical instructor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology at Tulane Medical Center. Currently, she is a consulting psychologist for Serenity Hospice. She's made appearances on television, radio, and my show now and has had articles published in professional journals as well as in local media. Marilyn, you can't beat my show. You'll see. You'll see. It's the I'm best. not doing radio yet, Mel. So. It's, you're doing radio. Oh, you're well, on today. radio right now as we speak. She has spoken nationally to healthcare providers and community groups. She is the author of the book, We Do Not Die Alone, which I'm sure you can find on Amazon or wherever else you find books. So good evening, Marilyn. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm good. Now, my listeners might detect a slight accent in oh, her are you voice. from you? <laughs> She's from New Orleans. <laughs> from New Orleans. I'm originally from Georgia, so I have a double yeah, I know. accent. So, well, I don't see an accent at all. I just <laughs> hear you all talk, and you're just the best. So I'm delighted to have you with us and um as those of you who who read my facebook and get the pr from voice america you know that i've asked dr mendoza to be here to talk about talking to children about death what parents can do and this came after i read this wonderful uh article of hers in psychology today um january 6th just a month ago, mm-hmm. not even, we have the most up-to-date guests, Marilyn. I just want you to know <laughs> that you're here, and my listeners are going to be delighted, too. So let me start by asking you a question, and that is, how did you get into talking to children about death? Well, uh, it took a, a long route to get there. Uh, obviously, I, I'm specializing in grief and bereavement. Um, 
I worked in hospice and worked with a lot of kids who family members were grieving. But I think it goes back to when I was young. My father died very suddenly when I was 13 years old. And it was, um, I realized in looking back on it now, the tremendous impact that it had on me. Um, I was confused. I um, just withdrew myself. Uh, nobody really talked about it. I was told where I was to go, what I was to do. Um, but things just continued on. My mom had worked in the store with my father, and she went back to work. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what all was going on with my mother at the time, but she got rid of all his clothes at once, and it was as though he had never been there. And, um, you know, that had really affected me in lots of different ways, and I didn't realize how much until I became an adult and began working with uh, people who were grieving. So I, I know from personal experience as well as professional experience uh, how you need to work with a child when there has been a death. So as we spoke um, last week, I, I shared with you a similar story that my daddy died two days before I turned 12. And like you, they didn't talk a lot about it. Uh, he had been sick for a year. He'd been at home. We didn't know why, because he never told us and mama never told us. It was one of those secrets mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that can destroy families if, if we let it. And they didn't let us go to the funeral. I'm the oldest of three, and my sister is two years she was 10, and my brother was six, and um, we didn't go to the funeral. We didn't go to the cemetery. I have a suspicion now, from what I know, that they didn't want to go to the funeral, and they didn't want to go to the cemetery, they, so they wanted to, to uh, protect us from pain, mm -hmm. which, yeah. you and I, which you and I know is impossible, yeah. but that's what they thought back in the day. Yeah, and my mother also did not want me to view my father uh, after he had died before the burial. Um, she felt that that was going to be too hard for me, and I didn't need to see him like that. But that also uh, meant that I didn't have closure um, by not being able to view him. Yeah. So parents well, do a lot of things, I, I believe, sincerely out of the need to try to protect their children, but what happens when they don't talk about it, uh, it makes things worse because, you know, children can imagine things that are far worse than what you might tell them. That's right. And yeah. it's always good to let them know what's going on because children are very smart. You know, we think they don't know what's going on, but they most certainly do. So if there's a change in the routine in the household, if people are crying, um, somebody's missing, they know that something's up. They don't know exactly sure. what has happened, but they certainly know that something has happened. And it makes them very anxious uh, if they don't find out. And it makes them very angry when they're not taken seriously as part of the family. Yes. Yes. When they're ignored, it made me crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody, I don't know, we stayed with the maid at home, I think, because she was the safe one, and we loved yeah. her. So at least we stayed with somebody who was safe and, and loving and all that, but we didn't talk. And I still remember, I, I might have told you, um, 
I still remember that when Danny died, we were staying with other relatives at the time, and we all came to the house. And one by one, Mother put us on the couch next to her, and she was in tears, and she said, Daddy died. And we didn't, I didn't know, really know what that meant. I mean, I watched TV, everybody watched TV, and you, you know, you see people die, but you know it's not the same. And so I still remember my Uncle Jack, who was the oldest brother of 12, put his arm around me. He said, Melvin, you're the man of the house now. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what does that mean? I'm 12 years old. I ain't the man of the house. Yeah. I'm a boy. I'm a child. I'm a, you know, I, what is it? I don't know anything. But that's what, that's only one of the stupid things that people said to me. What are some of the insensitive things that people said to you? Well, I remember the, the worst thing was that, you know, being in shock, and it was a small town in Georgia, and so as soon as people heard, they started coming to the house. And um, one of the things, I, I, I didn't remember this, but my brother reminded me of it uh, a little while ago, is that I never cried. And uh, that is a very bad sign that nobody picked up on at the time. But a friend of mine had come over, and she said to me, well, I thought you'd be more upset than you are. And I've never forgotten that, um, because I was upset, but I was in shock. But at the time, you know, people didn't think about that. They didn't know about that. Fortunately, we're more educated now about death and dying and the impact that it has on adults as well as children. Yeah, I... um... I don't, uh, I don't remember if I cried or not. I think I was probably in shock, but didn't know what that meant then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, who knew? We didn't know anything. You and I were just babes in the woods. We didn't, That's you know, right. That's right. we didn't know anything. But I do remember that people did say things like, um, "Well, they said to my mother, well, you're still young. She was in her mm-hmm. 40s. You can get married again.'" Mm-hmm. And and they were trying to be comforting. They were trying, you know, to be supportive. But that what they didn't understand or realize is that that just tried to hide the pain. Yes. And it yes. did absolutely no good for my mother or, or any of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the articles I had written for Psychology Today was on what to say and what not to say uh, when someone is grieving. And there certainly is a long list of things that people say trying to comfort you that end up making you very angry. So it is important to um, watch what you say to people. I always tell my congregants that um, I, I agree with that, obviously, and so I say to my congregants, um, if, you have, if I ever hear you say it's God's will, mm-hmm. I'm going to get real angry with you. <laughs> That's true. Actually, in a way, in a way I mean, if they're suffering and they're 99 years old and, you know, they got Alzheimer's or they got cancer or they got whatever they got, yeah, it, death is not always an enemy. Death is sometimes a, a blessing because it comes to putting into pain but don't I don't like when people say it was God's will because if somebody had ever said that to me I would have stopped believing in God well what I found is that 
any reference to God, even though people are trying to be kind, really aggravates and angers the people who are grieving. Um, you know, it's God's will, or it's God wanted him more than you did, and it's like that will really send people flying. So you have to be very careful. And I think when you talk to children about uh, death, you have to be very truthful with them and use words that they can understand and do it in small amounts. They can't take in a whole lot. So you might want to tell them, and I think the thing that you tell the youngest children is that the body stopped working, that they no longer breathe or eat or smell or see, that their body stopped. And a lot of times what happens is that when you tell a child, uh, probably more the older children, about a death, they may just turn around and walk out and go play. And so the parent will think, well, my goodness, you know, he didn't even care that his father died. But that's the way the child deals with it. They'll come back at another time for more information. It's really important for the parents to be very nurturing and consoling and loving with the child during this time. Uh, In my time with hospice, I saw children who were, I remember one I sat down to talk to, she was about 10 years old, and the family came in the room and didn't want me to talk to her, and they sent her out to a relative's house. And they had been doing that all along. Um, Her grandmother was dying in the other room, and she knew something was up, but they kept sending her away. And, you know, that made her very anxious. And so children need to know what's going on and they need to be told in simple, clear, direct ways. Yeah, I agree with you that you can't you can't talk to a five-year-old or even a three-year-old like you can talk to a seventeen-year-old. That's right. Well, because you know, little ones don't have the concept that death is permanent either. Mm-hmm. You know, like you were saying before, they'll see something on TV or a cartoon character gets killed, and then they're back up again. So they don't really understand that. I think the other thing that's important to remember when you're talking to a child about death is not to say that grandma's sleeping or we lost grandma. Well, a lot of kids develop problems sleeping as a result of that. So just to say that grandma died is what you need to say. Do you notice, like I do, that Nobody likes to say somebody died, they passed, is yeah. what they say. Yeah. I don't like that at all. No, no. I really don't like it. Passed to what? Yeah. To where? That doesn't, you know, that that sort of leaves room that uh, for doubt. That yeah. That's not as final as he died, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Or he's gone on a trip. That's another bad one. Don't want to say that to a child either. Oh, well, God, that's terrible. Yes, yes. That's the travel time. You don't, you don't ever want to go on a trip. Somebody says that to you. Yeah, absolutely. So the best thing to do, and, you know, adults themselves, most people have trouble thinking about or talking about death and dying, even with adults, let alone having to tell your child. Right. And that's the absolute hardest thing to do. Because you don't want to deal with it yourself, like That's you right. say. 
And so if you haven't thought about it and don't want to talk about it, how are you going to be able to help your child? And, of course, fortunately, there are therapists who can do that, but it's always best, I think, if the parent can do it and provide the um, understanding and nurturing that they need. Well, that's why there are people in this world like you and me who can help parents understand and 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 speak about death in a way that's not scary, but it's, mm-hmm. it's you know real and reasonable and 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 comforting. Yes, and well, then you know whatever your religious beliefs are too, you can share with the child. Right. About what you think happens to the the soul after the person dies, and sometimes people find that comforting. Yeah, I want to talk about that after the break, which we have soon, but you're right. I think, you know, if you have a religious faith and it it tells you, it it gives you comfort. And and Mm -hmm. let's stop there and we got a break and we'll be right back. My listeners, I love you. Uh, Dr. Mendoza and I will be right back. what makes the most successful people tick keep listening to the voice america empowerment channel voiceamericaempowerment.com believe it or not the bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the promised land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, and God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everybody. Rabbi Mel, I'm back. Uh, my guest tonight is Dr. Marilyn Mendoza, who deals with all kinds of very interesting things, uh, topics about death, 
she wrote an article for uh, Psychology Today last month. Not even a month, Marilyn. <laughs> Not even a month. See, you write it and I get you. So, and she, she um, is very active and this article talks about talking to children about death and that's what we've been talking about. So, in the first segment, we talked about the difference in how uh, kids of different ages understand death. Uh, little kids, you talk very simply, you say the, the part stopped working, basically. You say it nicer than that, but that's yeah. basically what you say. Mm-hmm. The body's not working anymore. Yeah, I mean, I hate to sound like a refrigerator salesman, but <laughs> that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Parts die, you die. And then we talked about um, teenagers who, you know, sometimes respond in ways that look like, as uh, Dr. Mendoza said, they don't care. And they go out and play or they go to their video, mm-hmm. you know, empires and do things on the, on the, on their phones and, and iPods and things like that. And then, of course, once you're, I guess, like 17, you know, you pretty much understand because you've seen it. Yeah. They understand that death is permanent. It's more the emotional upheaval yeah. that comes with it. I mean, such a time of emotional upheaval anyway in adolescence. And sometimes those adolescents don't feel comfortable talking to their parents. They might seek out a peer or uh, a teacher. And, of course, as I said before, there's always a grief counselor somewhere that um, if they would like to go, that would certainly be beneficial as well. Right. We, uh, right before the break, we were talking, you were talking about uh, parents should talk about their religious faith and what they believe mm-hmm. happens after death. And uh, I said to you during the commercial break that nobody really knows. Nobody's talked to us. We don't get messages. Uh, well, some people do. Uh, there are some psychics who claim that they do, and I know that there are these people. I've talked to them and been with them, and they really do, and I don't understand that at all. I just don't. Uh, it's it's way above my pay grade. I can't figure out, you know, how they understand what's going on, but um, some people believe, you know, you're going to go be back with your parents, and that comforts them, and some believe that you're just going to, your body's going to die, and as I like to say, uh, your legacy is what determines mm-hmm. heaven or hell. So that if people talk about you nicely, so when, when Marilyn Mendoza, God forbid, dies at the age of 150, then they're going to say, you know, she was a very nice lady and she was a teacher and she cared about the world. She cared about her students and she taught me stuff and my life is better because of her. She added meaning. That's heaven. But if they're talking about Rabbi Mel, they're going to say, Rabbi Mel was a jerk. He only cared about himself. He didn't, he didn't teach anybody anything. He didn't try to make the world a better place. And that's hell. So as I love to say, Mother Teresa's in heaven and Adolf Hitler is in hell, and I don't need anything else. But because I'm a rabbi, my job is to support and comfort, mm-hmm. not judge. I don't know what happens Yes. After somebody dies, you don't either. Nobody else does. And so I give that up. I don't 
I never say you're wrong, never, mm-hmm. because what do I know? I, I just think what I think. Yeah. And as you said, it's that's not what about I call us imposing our beliefs onto somebody else. It's finding right. out what their beliefs are and using that to help them cope with uh, the death, the person who's dying as well as uh, the family. Yeah, it's a, it, I see religious belief in part as, in a way, it's a way of reestablishing control over your life in an area mm-hmm. where you have no control. That is okay. life and death. Mm-hmm. And so, no control, but we, I mean, in the Jewish tradition, we go to the cemetery and we take shovels of earth and we begin to fill in the grave. It's something we can do. It doesn't make it all go away, but at least in a life in which we don't control anything, at least we can do something. Mm-hmm. And I think rituals are, are very important um, in, in dealing with grief and, and the death, and um, it's something very specific and concrete that people can do. And I think that children should be allowed to be part of the planning of things like that, that they may want to pick out music, let's say, uh, to play, um, or draw pictures, or I think making helping them to be a part of it is uh, is a good thing. I think that children shouldn't be forced to go to the funeral if they don't want to, but you have to ask the child what they want to do, or maybe they want to go to the funeral, but they don't want to see the um, coffin uh, in the grave. So it's always best to ask um, what it is that they want to do and to try to let them be a part of it. Yeah. You mentioned um, having inviting kids to pick out the music. When you and I were growing up, there was no such thing at funerals. That's right. There was no music, nothing. Yep. Um, you just have a service, coffins closed or open, depending on your religious beliefs, and mm-hmm. Some holy guy like me or somebody would get up and, I mean, maybe we knew the guy, maybe we didn't know the guy. Uh I was just talking to somebody today who told me he was at a funeral three days ago, and it was awful because it happened to be a Catholic church, and they had a mass, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was that the priest didn't know the guy who died. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he spoke about him as if he were his best friend. But he didn't really talk about him a whole lot. Now, I've been in that situation. Sometimes you don't know the guy. Sometimes he's not a member of your congregation. So sometimes you meet the family 20 minutes before the funeral, which is why I no longer do biographies at funerals. Mm -hmm. I used to until a very revered teacher of mine in rabbinical school said, gentlemen, it was just gentlemen then, thank God there are now women who are ordained. Mm-hmm. He said, gentlemen, there are two types of, fun- of, of people who come to every funeral. Uh, some of the, most of them know him, some of them do not know him. For the ones that know him, you don't have to give a biography, they know him. Mm-hmm. And for the ones who don't know him, they're just here because their friend's father died, they'll ask. You don't have to waste people's time and give a biography. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so yeah. I stopped doing that, which allows me what I used to do and what a lot of preachers do is you go to the house the day before and you you write down everything they tell you 
And then you go home. I used to promise myself, I used to take an oath that I would not go to sleep that night until the funeral, the eulogy was done. And if it wasn't written, I didn't go to bed. I stayed up until two in the morning if I had to. Mm. And I took a biblical verse or something or an upcoming Jewish holiday and I, you know, wrapped it up, put a ribbon on it. And that was the eulogy. Now, I ask two or three members of the family to tell stories mm-hmm. about the person because they knew him best of all. And if I didn't know him at all, I will say, introduce me to him or her. Mm-hmm. So interesting because when they do that, they stand and face me at the cemetery. I don't ask them to do that, but they, I, when I say introduce me, I guess they figure they got to face me. And I turn back towards the, the, the people who are there. But it's, um, I've, I feel great about that. It's honest. There are a lot of tears. That's mm-hmm. a good thing in a funeral. There's a lot of laughter because people do funny things in their lives. That's right. And but there's nothing wrong with it. They laugh at funerals. They were very serious things. And, right. Uh, there was no levity. Right. I just. I'm yeah. sorry. I was just no, going to say I think humor is such an important part of, you know, the grieving process too. Once you get to the point where you can laugh about things that they've done, that really helps in the healing. Right. Last week I put on Facebook. Mary Tyler Moore died last week, mm-hmm. so I put on something that I shared from somebody else. The funniest show that she ever did, which was about the funeral of Chuckles the Clown. Uh-huh. And everybody is sitting there, and everybody is, Dick Van Dyke is there, and everybody in the show is there. And the uh, minister is talking about Chuckles the Clown and all that. And Mary Tyler Moore, she just couldn't keep it together. Mm-hmm. She started to laugh, and then she started to get hysterical, and then <laughs> it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens. It's normal. It's natural. And it was funny. And a hundred yes, people copied it. So I like that. <laughs> because when you see something like that, and I remember seeing the show, it was the best. It was just because it was so human and so normal. And people laugh at funerals. Mm-hmm. Yes. I I grew up that you were and you did too, knowing I mean thinking you weren't this was a serious absolutely you didn't and and there were a lot of tears which is natural mm-hmm. and normal and I've seen widows and widowers laughing hysterically about some of the things that their spouses did yes and that's, that's so healthy the, oh yeah it's wonderful it's wonderful. When I die, my wife, I told my wife, listen, she says, what do you want to do? So I said, well, in my neighborhood, Tuesdays is trash day. <laughs> so put me in the recycle, in the green bag, and put me out, and, they'll, and the boys will come, and they'll pick me up, and they'll recycle me, and whatever, because I don't really, I ain't going to be there, so... Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think happens after some after you die? Well, of course, I, nobody knows for sure, as you say, but I have done an awful lot of research on near-death experiences and deathbed visions. And um, 
and also being around people who've experienced these things, you know, it makes me believe that there is definitely something out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm hoping my mom and dad will come and get me. Whether mm-hmm. they will or not, I don't know. But uh, looking like at all you. the literature if they, that like they you, have, they'll come it's and get hard you. kind of not to believe what uh, I'm reading and seeing. I don't understand it, just like you said, but... Yeah. But it's faith. Mm-hmm. And it comforts you to think that. Absolutely. I had a guest um, about a month ago who had a near-death experience, and she came on the show, and she was... I got her to cry, I'm proud to say. <laughs> she sounded... <laughs> I know, I'm terrible. But that's my job, you know. I, I'll always be a rabbi. Always, I'll always be a grief therapist. Always. So she was talking about her experience, and and she sounded very um, strong. And you know, she was telling me the story, and I'm thinking to myself, no, we can't let this go on like this. So I don't know what I said, but in my own inimitable way. Um, she started to cry when she was talking about, you know, that experience. And mm-hmm. she she um, has gone through that and moved forward in her life, and she's very happy. And she, you know, we've become sort of friends. Uh, and I've said to her many times over the phone that I really have no idea what she's talking about. And her response was, nobody does. You can't until you Mm -hmm. did it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and she had these visions, and I don't think she saw the bright light that everybody talks about and the the tunnel of the bright light, you know, leading up to wherever. Mm -hmm. And and somebody giving you the, the choice of leaving or staying here. And people... Most people come back here because they're not done with whatever their mission is. But I think also, you know, uh, when they come back, their lives are significantly changed. Absolutely. Uh, Yep. It's been, you know, quite a a life-altering experience for them. She told me that. I asked her, what did she learn? Because I believe that you have to learn something, that everything is a learning experience. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you don't learn from it, you've wasted it. Yes. Whether it's good or bad, or I don't care. You've got to learn something. So I asked her what she had learned from her near-death experience, and she said, you know, it's cliche, but the phrase don't sweat the small stuff really means a lot to her now. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't, she doesn't get all anxious about small stuff. That's good. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> a lot of people with suffering from anxiety disorders <laughs> could use Well, I that. know. I mean, I get anxious too, but I don't want to have an NDE to cure it. <laughs> that's not, you know, I'm not, that's, I wouldn't volunteer to have one. But she, uh, she didn't volunteer either, obviously. And uh, she was not well. Now she's better and she takes better care of herself and, Good. All those things, but the, the near-death experience really changed her life as it's mm-hmm. supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's well, a very interesting field to investigate. Is there a lot? Well, I guess there's more than there used to be written about it. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Jeff Long, who's um, in this area, um, has a huge website with over 4,000 experiences from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, uh, it's org. And so if you have any interest mm-hmm. in that, going to that website um, will be really helpful for you. Yeah. Um, I will do that. It it sounds interesting, and I always, I mean, it's part of our field, mm-hmm. tangentially perhaps, but it's still part of our field, and it's and I'm curious about it. Yes, I'm just, and I think it's important to understand about these things because when we're talking with patients in the hospital, you know, they may have had an experience or a deathbed vision, and they're afraid to tell anybody because most people tell them that, oh, they, that's not possible, they were hallucinating or they upped their medication, when that's not the case at all. There's a yep. big difference between being in delirium and having these experiences where you're very much lucid and present. Right. Well, we got to take a break, so I'm going to try to stay lucid and present for we <laughs> So, my listeners, we're not done yet, and you're not done yet, so stick around. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. We're back. Rabbi Mel is here with you with my guest and new friend, Dr. Marilyn Mendoza, who is talking with us 
about an article she wrote last month in Psychology Today, which I think it's one of the only magazines that as I get older, I do not unsubscribe to because I love reading the stuff and it's, it's really good stuff and it makes me think. I've been unsubscribing, you know, when you get older, like me, not like you, we start to give it up. So um, we've been talking about lots of things. We started out talking about kids and how to talk to kids about grief. And on your article, on your on this article, um, one of the things that you say is let them know that people grieve differently and there is not only one way to grieve. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I agree with you, but I want to hear what you have to say. Adults, uh, as well, that adults don't know that there's not just one way to grieve. Um, they don't really realize what you have to go through when you're grieving. I have had one male uh, who was recently uh, widowed, and um, he said, you know, I've been going through this for two months, and I'm not over it yet. Well, he'd been married like 50 years, and so you're not going to get over that in two months. And, you know, some people will say, well, I don't know how she can do that, or I'm crying all the time. And, you know, there is no set way. And so how your child is going to grieve might be very different than how you're going to grieve. But it's, you know, being judgmental is not going to be helpful at all. I think you just need to support the child and the adult in that it's okay that you grieve in this way. I think that the problem that we parents have is that we want to make it okay for our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we want them, we want to protect them, and we want it not to ruin their lives. I mean, somebody died, and we know that that's what happens in this world. Mm-hmm. And we want to, I guess, protect them from that knowledge for all kinds of reasons, least of which is we don't want them to worry about their dying. Yes. And that often comes up, I find. Do you find that, too, with kids? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, A friend of mine, her son is six years old, and just out of the blue, he asked, uh, when was he going to die? And, uh, you know, she was kind of taken aback because it was just not related to anything. But they, the children will ask about those things. And so one of the ways to respond to that is that, you know, to say, well, everybody dies, but you're, most people will live a very long life, and you will too. You'll be, you know, have a family, children, and even grandchildren before you die. So, and you can also let them know that you're going to be there for them because that's what they're really asking is, you know, are you going to die? Are you going to leave me? Well, yes, honey, eventually I'm going to leave you too. And you just start crying now because you have to start preparing. You can't say that, obviously. (laughs) No. I, I say to people, I say to kids, when your grandparents die... You're going to live a very, 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 somebody told me to repeat very three times. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but they said it matters. You're going to live a very, very, very long time. And then I say a lot of stuff that you just said, mm-hmm. that I'll be here and we love you and you're okay now and you're going to be okay 
you know, for a long, long time. Uh, I don't know whether that comforts them or not. Well, know. but that's the best answer that you can give. Uh, if they have other questions about it, they'll come back again for sure. Um, one of the things I didn't touch on before that I meant to that's really important is that many times children <clears throat> will believe that it's their fault that the person died right. and carry a lot of guilt. And so it's very important that um, the parent or whomever lets the child know that it had nothing to do with them. It had to do with, you know, dad's body or, or whatever not working. Yeah. And I also think that one of the hardest things that parents, not that this isn't hard, but to explain a suicide or a homicide mm-hmm. to a child, what a dreadful thing to have to do. But I think, like, with the suicide, you can tell the child, young child pretty much, the same type of thing that you would say about the body, but you can also what you can say to them that their brain had a disease, and the disease is called depression. And when you have depression like that, your brain can't think straight. It makes bad decisions, and people feel you know hopeless or helpless. They felt there was nothing that they could do to make it better, and so they took their life. And um, that helps them to understand a little bit. Obviously, you're going to, at different ages, and you're going to have different types of explanations for it, but I've always found that to be helpful, that you name what it is, that there's a disease in their brain that's depression. Okay. I want to, you wrote a book that's called We Do Not Die Alone, Jesus is Coming to Get Me in a White Pickup Truck. Yes. So you told me the story, but I want you to tell my listeners the story. Why you chose that title, where it came from, and how you wrote the book. Um, well, the title I thought was extremely funny. I was, had, was doing a survey of nurses who dealt with the dying oncology nurses, hospice nurses, to see what their experiences had been with patients who had deathbed visions. And um, so one of the accounts that I got was about a man who was dying. He sat up in his bed, and he said that his mother was coming to get him, which is a a common thing that people see. And the mother was in a white pickup truck, and Jesus was driving the truck. So for some reason, that image just struck me as very funny, and so that's how I came to add it (laughs) to the title. And it's been uh, quite interesting to see people's reaction to to that, but it's funny. It's meant to be funny. It's hilarious. um, Got me laughing. But in the book, um, what I found was that uh, these experiences impact the nursing staff as well. 85% of them felt that it was, these were true spiritual experiences that changed their views about life themselves. So these are powerful experiences that people are having, and um, it's just important for the staff and other people just to listen to them. You don't have to believe it, but you can listen to them and the impact it's had on them. I think that when you are fortunate enough to work with the dying and you are caring for the dying, you are caring for at least three people at the same time. That is, the first person is the person in front of you in bed 
who's dying mm -hmm. and you are helping them come to the end of their life <clears throat> and say whatever they need to say in terms of uh, I forgive you, I apologize, uh, thank you, and mm -hmm. goodbye, and and you're helping them do that. Mm -hmm. But I have this theory that I've never read anywhere else, and I really should write about it, because it really is important to me that the second person is somebody in your family who has died, and you have not completed your relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And so being with this person in front of you helps you to... Uh, complete your relationship with an aunt, an uncle, a mm -hmm. you know, somebody else yeah, in your family, or in our case, a parent, mm -hmm. you know, who we didn't get a chance to say goodbye to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the third person is yourself. That, and you and I both know that working with the dying makes us more sympathetic and less afraid mm -hmm. of our own death. Yes, absolutely. I, I, it's taken my fear of death away, and yeah. I used to be terrified of death. I'm not terrified of death because I'm not going to be there. I'm, I'm <laughs> you and Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. So um, I gave you that line. It's okay. Okay. So I, I'm afraid of dying. I mean, I don't want to, nobody, you know, death is death. You're gone. It's over with. But I just want to make sure now we can make sure that I leave from a hospice, you know, or mm -hmm. I stay at home and, and, um, and I'm cared for by people who love me. I had a guest a month or so ago, um, a woman, a funeral director who said, don't, entrust the bodies to a funeral home take care of them yourself put put them at home i mean get them at home let them die in bed mm -hmm. and you don't have to have a funeral tomorrow you you put dry ice around them so they won't uh, decay and give that awful odor that you and i know mm -hmm. and what the good news about that is one you take care of them yourself Second, you can crawl in bed with them at two o'clock in the morning yes. and be with them and hug them and say whatever you got to say and yeah, that's whatever priceless. you need to say. And that's a totally different experience than mm -hmm. what you and I had mm -hmm. where they die and we never see them again. That's it, brothers. Goodbye. Yes. You know? Yes. I, I so think I, I thought that was humane now. Yeah, that's right. I always wonder why we treat animals with more humanity than we treat human beings. That's a, a profound answer. question. I wish I knew the answer. I have a pet loss lady that I'm going to invite on. She's written a couple books about pet loss. That's one of the questions I'm going to ask her. My sister's dog just died in Atlanta, and the dog was 14 years old. That's pretty old, right? Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. We loved her. And they took her to the vet the last time, and they were with her. The vet gave her the shot, you know, and she just peacefully fell asleep. Mm -hmm. And he gave her the next shot, and that was it. So it wasn't painful, and it wasn't, you know. So I always wonder when I hear about things like that, why can't we treat people the same way? 
you know, if you know you're going to die, don't make people stick around and suffer. That's not yeah. life. That's that's terrible. I mean, well, fortunately now we have palliative care, which is an extra level of of comfort that people have. Right, and that's what I want to. Um, that's what I want when my time comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you. I mean, everybody does. Yeah. I want my yeah. family to be around so they can apologize for all the things <laughs> they didn't do. <laughs> and maybe there's one or two things that I need to apologize to them for. Um, but that's what I want. I want the family around and I want yeah. that kind of experience without pain because I'm afraid of pain. Uh, I, I'm not afraid of it. I just don't like it. And people don't really talk about what they want at the end of life. Um, and so family members are kind of left guessing as to what, what they should do if the person's not able to communicate. And even if they are, sometimes doctors don't listen. That's right. Oh, sometimes, uh, a lot of the time, they don't listen. I know. You see, we've all seen that. Mm-hmm. You can write anything you want. But I remember, I just remember growing up in Atlanta, and um, I went to see my, my grandmother, my bubby in the hospital before she died. And I was talking to the head nurse, this, this wonderful big black woman who was the most loving woman I ever met. And she told me that when somebody was in, in, you know, dying and the bells and whistles went off, she would walk very slowly to their hospital room. Because she knew that when God said, it's your time, it's your time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was very moved by that. Okay. We are unfortunately at the end of our show. Oh, that went so fast. I know. I know. So listen, everybody. This is what you do. You go to um, HTTP colon double slash www.marilynmendoza.com. And you will see a wonderful website with lots of interesting stuff. And you go buy her book, We Do Not Die Alone. If you go to the website, it's on the website. And remember, Jesus is coming to get you in a white pick truck. <laughs> I love that. So, okay, I'll be back. Thank you, Marilyn. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Marilyn. It's been a pleasure having you. All right, my listeners, my friends, thanks for listening. And we'll be together next week. Good night. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.